0: Well, glad to see you this morning, of course, and we are going to be continuing on in our study of the Gospel of Mark, taking just a little section at a time and a few verses at a time and working our way through all of those. So we'll be in Mark chapter 10 and looking at a section here in just a moment. About 40 years ago... There was a new movement within the evangelical church that began to become quite popular. It was came to be called the seeker-sensitive movement. Uh, generally, this movement has seen a huge amount of growth. Many seeker-sensitive churches, particularly those in large population areas, are now megachurches with uh, and by megachurch, I mean they've got well over a thousand people every week, sometimes five or six or seven, thousand people every week. Hard for us to imagine here in our rural setting, but many places today have uh, five to seven to 10,000 people who are in their church facilities. They could take about uh, 50 of our little church building and stick them in there. But anyway, those churches have now turned into mega churches with well-known pastors who are riding a wave of popularity. Uh, Throughout the evangelical world, the seeker-sensitive movement claims millions of salvation decisions, seems to have massive financial resources, and appears to be attracting millions of unchurched people nationwide. Basically, the seeker-sensitive church tries to reach out to the unsaved person by making the church experience as comfortable as possible. And inviting and not, and a very non threatening. And the hope is that the person then will believe the gospel. The idea behind their concept is to get as many unsaved people through the door as possible. And those who promote this philosophy seem generally willing to use any means necessary to accomplish that goal. Uh, Theatrics, entertainment, state-of-the-art technology, and lighting and sound very common components of the seeker-sensitive churches, especially the larger ones. Uh, Shorter sermons, typically 20 minutes max, please don't say amen, uh, are usually usually focused on uh, self-improvement topics and a desire to avoid uh, divisive issues that might offend or upset anybody. Uh, supporters of this movement say that the the single reason behind all the expense and all of the -the state-of-the-art tech gear and all the theatrics is to reach the unsaved with the gospel. And they say that if you give unbelievers great entertainment and you do church in a non-threatening way, then people will come and hopefully they will accept the gospel. The seeker-friendly gospel presentation is kind of based on the idea that if you believe in Jesus, he will make your life better. Uh, Your relationships will be better. Your finances will be better. Your overall life will be better. And if you, especially if you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior, some of you could uh, think of some guys on television you've heard who preach exactly those things. And you know that there is some value in what they have promoted. Uh, We should be friendly and gracious and welcoming to folks who visit our services. We want to have a spirit of excellence in what we do. We don't want to be haphazard or disorganized. We are representing the Lord Jesus and His message, so we want to be sharp. There are many useful tools of modern technology that we can employ, and we should, as best we can, use those tools effectively. Large urban churches, of course, are going to have much greater financial resources for technology, but we should, as best we can, use those tools effectively. We want meaningful, Christ-honoring music. We want Bible-centered preaching and teaching, and we certainly want to reach people for Christ. And we always hope and pray that folks who visit will return, and we pray that we can minister to them in meaningful ways and that they will become faithful fixtures in our fellowship but the question is always how far can we go down that road when does being relevant start being worldly that's always the issue when does being relevant start being worldly and that debate has led to what many have called the worship wars Uh, in the last few years the worship wars have become less intense Basically because church leaders have kind of drawn their lines, and they've decided where they stand and how far they're going or they're not going. And the folks in the pew have decided where they stand and where they want to go to church, and they found a place that kind of fits what they want. But how has it gone these last several decades for the seeker-sensitive churches? Well, they have generally grown, sometimes turning into megachurches. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, have supposedly professed faith in Jesus in the last 40 years. They have achieved their goal of getting massive numbers of unbelievers to attend their services. But you know, about 15 years ago, one of the biggest names in the seeker-sensitive movement uh, wrote an article that kind of went viral in which he said, We've been all wrong in our approach. Our approach did, in fact, he said, attract massive numbers of unbelievers, and it did result in massive numbers of professions of faith, but he said it never did produce grounded disciples, spiritually mature followers of Jesus. In their words, they said, we produced numbers, but we did not produce disciples. Those who truly came to Christ in their ministries and they wanted to grow in Christ, they ended up leaving their mega church and going to a smaller church with less hoopla and more Bible. It seems I mean that, that's what they say. So their church kind of became like a, like a revolving door with people leaving as quickly as they were coming. Uh, but his open letter to the American church didn't seem to phase very many, and we still have today massive numbers of churches with rock music and multicolored lighting, etc., and the desire to look like the world and sound like the world and dress like the world and act like the world in order to try to reach the world. Uh, Being being relevant in the eyes of the unbelieving world uh, seems to be at the top of the priority list, Uh, the assumption being That the world is full of seekers, and if we can just figure out the right angle and provide it for them somehow, that will draw them to salvation and following Jesus. And even though the prominent leaders in the Seeker Sensitive Movement said after 30 years it didn't work, they still continue to do that in many places today. Truthfully, I am sure that the world is full of people who are seeking something. They're seeking fulfillment. They're seeking meaning, they're seeking purpose, they're seeking happiness, they're seeking love, they're seeking contentment. No no doubt about that. But are they seeking God? Usually not, unless they think God can give them all the other stuff. Then God becomes a means to an end. He's kind of like the genie in the bottle. And if I rub him the right way, he'll come out and give me what I'm really seeking for. Love and happiness and contentment and all those things. Romans chapter 3 says, no man seeks after God. There are lots of people out there, lots of people who want a more satisfying life. They want a more fulfilling life. And if you throw in heaven, all the better. However, God has to come to them on their terms Because they are self-focused seekers. They may say they're seeking God, they may even think they are seeking God, but they are seeking a God of their own making and seeking Him for self-focused reasons. Now, we have an example of exactly that in our text today, here in Mark chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this incident. It's in Matthew 19, here in Mark 10, and in Luke 18. They all record the same incident. So we can rest assured that the Spirit of God wanted us to see this three times to be sure that we're going to get it. I originally planned to cover this entire section today, but I couldn't do it without preaching a two-hour sermon. as certainly far more than the 20 minutes that some people won't want. But anyway, so we, will, so we will read the entire section this week. Then we'll look at the second half of this teaching next Sunday, Lord willing. So let's begin here in Mark 10, and we'll start in verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, and this, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ... One came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. You know, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God! And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Most of us would love to have this experience in evangelism that Jesus had. Someone comes running up to us uh, us and they ask, "How can I get to heaven?" We'd love to open our Bibles and explain that to them. And in the case of this young man, we would generally think that he is truly seeking the Lord. Notice all of the positives about him there in in verse 17. He comes earnestly. That is, he's running. He doesn't just stroll up to Jesus and casually ask a question. He runs to Jesus. In Luke's record of this incident, he calls this man a ruler, which would imply he's a ruler in a synagogue. That would be one of the only ways that word is used. So he is one of the leaders that oversee all of the services and teachings and prayer times and events in a synagogue, a very prestigious religious position. And in, in Matthew's account, he said he was young. So you put all three together, Matthew, Mark and Luke, and all they say he was wealthy, now, they all say he was wealthy, so we refer to him often as the rich young ruler. Matthew says he's young, Mark or, or Luke says he's a ruler, and all three of them say he was wealthy. But you know, people of status never ran anywhere. That was considered to be inappropriate behavior. So here we have this, this young, wealthy synagogue ruler who comes running up to Jesus. And it's very interesting because so many of the scribes and Pharisees hated Jesus. So it's kind of quite surprising that this synagogue ruler would actually do this publicly. Publicly run up to Jesus. But he's obviously very earnest. He's very sincere about all this. He comes also humbly. He kneels down in front of him. Again, it's like... Wow, I mean, this guy's this guy's really coming to the Lord. Look at him. He comes running up the road, and he kneels down in front of Jesus. And I'm sure everybody around is thinking, well, In fact, in Matthew, he says, Behold, this young ruler came running to Jesus. It's like, whoa. Like, like, why would he do this in public? And then he kneels down in front of him. So he, he, he comes with this attitude of humility and this sense of real earnestness. He comes very respectfully. He calls him good teacher, meaning good rabbi. He comes very seriously. He's he's got this honest question. He's been struggling with something. He has some doubts about eternity. He has this empty spot in his heart. He has everything that the world has to offer. He's got financial security. He's got social status. He's got religious respect. But he still has some doubts, and he's got some empty spot in his heart. He's, He's got this serious question. Oh, good rabbi, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And if you and I were talking and say, hey, man, let me show you what the Bible says about getting to heaven. Wow, it seems exciting. But the Lord Jesus approaches the question in a very interesting way. In fact, one of the wonderful advantages that the Lord Jesus Christ had in his witnessing is that he knew everybody's heart. We don't know everybody's heart. Jesus knew everybody's heart. So, so, so we, would, we would tend to respond like the Apostle Paul did to the jailer in Philippi in Acts 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus. Exercise your faith in Jesus Christ and you can be forgiven. But Jesus begins with a very basic foundational issue. He says to him, why are you calling me good? There is no one good but God. Now, Jesus is not saying that he is not God. He's addressing the issue of how do we define goodness. This young man only knows Jesus as a well-known rabbi. He does not recognize Jesus at this point as being the son of God or, or being God. He just knows that Jesus has a reputation for being this fantastic teacher of the scripture, which, of course, he was. So Jesus begins this conversation with a statement about goodness. There is no one good except God. Now when we think about that, then we realize where Jesus is going with this conversation. Because almost everybody thinks they're good. I have heard that, I couldn't tell you how many times. I'm I'm basically a, a good guy. You know, I've never really hurt anybody. I certainly never hurt anybody on purpose. I just—I mean—I'm I'm basically a good person. I just wish people would recognize that I'm basically a good person. I've heard that a thousand times in the last forty years. Almost everybody thinks they're good, but the Lord Jesus Christ says, "In fact, we're going to point him back to the Scripture because the Scripture teaches that no one is actually good." No one is good except God, and Jesus says so here. And that makes goodness, think with me, that makes goodness an absolute, not a relative quality. Goodness is a standard of absolute perfection. It's not a relative term. Now, there are relative degrees of bad. You're not as bad as your neighbors, I'm sure. I'm not as bad as everybody else, right? Hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that guy down the road. You see, we don't all sin in exactly the same way, and that's true. We don't all sin in exactly the same way to exactly the same degree. There are relative degrees of bad. But there are not relative degrees of good. You're either good or you're not. It's not relative. It's an absolute. God is good. None of us is good Only God is good. And that would be a smashing blow to a person who thinks they can get to heaven by their goodness, which in this case is this young man who's talking to Jesus. So, so the issue here is, is that Jesus begins by challenging this young man's sense of goodness. But, and you know, but before, if you're witnessing to people, before you can talk about salvation, before you can talk about the kingdom of God, before you can talk about eternal life and doing the will of God, we have to understand that we are not good. This man did not understand goodness because he had no real understanding of the law of God. Now, as a Jewish religious leader, a ruler in a synagogue, he should have known the Psalms. They were commonly read in the synagogues, commonly taught in the synagogues. And if he knew the Psalms, he would know that the Psalms say this, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who is good. There is none who seeks after God. Now some of you brilliant Bible scholars may recognize that phrase. Those those phrases I just said is coming from Romans chapter 3, and you are correct. But, of course, Romans 3 had not been written yet here in the Gospels, and when the Apostle Paul did write it, he was collecting verses from the Psalms. The Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Psalm 36, and even throws in a verse from Isaiah 59 when he writes that section in, in, in Romans 3 about us being sinners. And he culminates it in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But all those phrases, starting in verse 10 up through verse 18, the Apostle Paul is collecting from the Psalms. So apparently this ruler in the synagogue did not know his Bible very well. Because good is not a relative quality. It is an absolute most folks think they are good because they are comparing themselves to other people. And compared to that other guy over there, I'm doing pretty good. But when we compare ourselves to God, we are all sinful disasters. We are a wreck. We are doomed. Again, from Psalm 130, King David wrote, If iniquity was marked against us, O Lord, who could stand? You see, goodness Is an absolute quality and only God has it. But in the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, he graciously and patiently attempts to point this out to this confused young man. He goes on with this brief lesson in the law. These are mostly the Ten Commandments. He goes on to say, uh, verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Do not defraud is not in the Ten Commandments, but we believe that Mark was simply paraphrasing the thought of do not covet. He says, so, so Jesus says, uh, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, and honor your parents. Don't manipulate anybody to get what they have. And, of course, this young man, he thinks he's got it all together. He has always done all these things since he was a kid. That's what he says to Jesus. Oh, dear master, I have have kept all these things from my youth. I have done all the commandments since I was a little kid. Never broke any of them. Now, of course, you know, that's probably nonsense. But, but, when you think that you are good enough to get to heaven, and when you imagine yourself that in the eyes of God you're good, then you're going to say things like that. I have kept all of that my whole life, Lord, but in the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, he again he again addresses this relationship to God. Now you may remember in the in the Ten Commandments, in the listing of the Ten Commandments which is in Exodus 20. The first four deal with our relationship to God. The last six deal with our relationship to other people. Jesus started with the second section, all of our relationship to people. And this young man thinks that his relationships to, uh, to other people have all been perfect. Never done any of these things. So Jesus addresses his relationship to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus doesn't ask him if he's kept that one. He simply points out in a very powerful way that he hasn't kept it. And notice that Mark records that Jesus looked at him there in verse 21. He looked at him and loved him. He looked at him, this long gaze is what the word means, and he loved him. He is not speaking harshly to him. He's not being confrontational. He's not yelling at him. He's not chewing him out. He's not shaking his finger at him. He just looks at him for a moment, and with a, and, and with a, this heart of compassion, Jesus says, "Well, young man, you lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it all to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and take up your cross and follow me."
1: Notice he doesn't
0: argue with Jesus. He doesn't ask him to clarify anything. He doesn't try to contradict anything Jesus says. It just says he was sad. The Greek word there means dark and gloomy. He was dark and gloomy. He, He crashed emotionally, he crashed mentally. He just walks away sorrowful, it says. That is, he's distressed, he's crushed. He's disappointed, he's broken hearted, why? Because he would not let go of his real God. His real God was his stuff. The Greek word translated possessions generally is used, is used to indicate property, land acquisitions, land holdings, not talking about necessarily bags of gold and silver this young ruler in the synagogue apparently owned a bunch of property perhaps agricultural property perhaps several houses maybe both and he apparently had quite a bit because the scripture says he had great possessions. And that word great means great in number. So he had, he had an enormous number of land holdings somewhere, somehow. He didn't just own a house and a vineyard. He had a number of different properties. And when Jesus says, Sell it, liquidate everything you've got and come and follow me and take up your cross, he just has this gasp of horror. <gasps> I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. You see, because he wasn't really seeking God. He was seeking heaven on his own terms. Now, please don't misunderstand Jesus. You don't get to heaven by selling the farm. You don't get to heaven by liquidating the ranch and giving the money to your church. Might be a great idea, but you won't get to heaven. You don't enter the kingdom of God by cashing out all your investments and giving the money to the Lord's work around the world. But Jesus is asking this man, where is your heart? Where is your loyalty? What is your highest priority? Who are you actually trusting? You shall have no other gods before me, the first commandment. You will have no other gods before me. And after restating the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses summarized those—that's uh, the commandment in Deuteronomy 6 this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So Jesus says, OK, young man, if you want to keep all the commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. So liquidate everything you have and follow me. He couldn't do it. There are lots of people out there today who want a more satisfying life, a more fulfilling life. And if you throw in heaven, great. However, God has to come to them in their minds on their terms, because so many people who say they are seeking are actually self-focused seekers. They are seeking a God of their own making. They, they are seeking Him for self-focused reasons, as was this young man. There are many out there who say, "I'm seeking. I've had many, just had someone tell me just to, just last week, "I'm really seeking for something. I'm really seeking." Yeah, I really, I want really, to. I really want to go someplace to church where I'm, where I'm being ministered to. I really want to. I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been searching for the last five years. Someone told me, and people, he's not the first guy to tell me things like that. I've heard that many, many times. But are they truly seeking God, or are they just seeking a better life for themselves and thinking God can do it for them? They see a person can't receive the gospel of salvation until they have recognized their sin. Good is an absolute. Only God has it, and only Jesus Christ can give it to us when we trust his work on the cross for us. Hallelujah for the cross. We can receive the goodness of God, but we don't earn it. It's not a part of us. Jesus Christ gives it to us He gives us His goodness, so we are clothed, as the Scripture says, in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because we deserve it, not because it's in us, not because we earned it, because Jesus Christ gives it to us when we trust what He did on the cross by faith. You see, good is an absolute, and only God has it, and only Jesus Christ can give it to us when we trust His work on the cross. So, hallelujah for the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for this pointed exchange of words between the Lord Jesus Christ and this young man. He uh, is just like so many, many people in this world who want Jesus to try to fix everything for them. Who want Jesus to make them wealthy? Who want Jesus to bring them uh, a, a new a new boyfriend or girlfriend or a new husband or wife or a, or a better job or higher pay or or all the other things people try to improve their lives with and try to use you to get it? And Lord, we know you certainly do bless your children. You certainly do honor people who are trying to be faithful to you. You are gracious and kind to we who know you as our Savior. But Lord, we have to come to you with pure motives, not as self-focused seekers, but as people who truly want heaven, who truly want a relationship with you. Lord, help us to examine our own hearts. May we pray for those around us who seem to be seeking the Lord. May we help to guide them to the truth. There is no one good but you, but you can give us your goodness through faith in Jesus Christ. So Lord, we praise you for all you are and and what you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.